Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is October 26, 2015. This is episode 1665 of the Survival Podcast. And I've got a good one for you today because it is a listener feedback show. That means you guys basically write the content for a show like today. This is all based on emails that you send me at jack at the com with TSPC in the subject line. Again, Tango Sierra Papa Charlie in the subject line. And then video for Jack, comment for Jack, story for Jack, article for Jack, anything like that. And uh, it will get proper screening for inclusion on a show like this. Can't put them all in the air just due to numbers, but I do read them all and I do consider them all. And they all contribute uh, to future shows, and a lot of them get put out on places like Facebook and Twitter and other uh, social media outlets, so do keep them coming even if you don't hear them on the air. With that, before we get into uh, your feedback from me, let's go ahead and uh, hear from our sponsors today. They do a lot to help take care of you and make sure that the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today is jmbullion.com. When I'm looking for silver or gold... I go to jambullion.com, and I'll tell you why. They're a small enough company that I can personally communicate directly with the president, Michael, at any time of my choosing. And that means as, uh, as someone that's endorsing them, if you ever have a problem that doesn't get resolved by their customer service, which is 99% of the time stellar anyway, I can make sure that it gets taken care of for you. And I think that's really important in my sponsors. Next is pricing. The entire point of buying silver and gold is it's the same, it's the same, it's the same. You get the same Silver Eagle from JM Bullion as you do from Atmex or Monex. It's exactly the same. It's the same purity, it's the same weight, it's the same design, it's the same cut. It is the same. It's like buying a Wilson basketball, whether you buy it from you know Walmart or Academy Sports and Outdoors. It's the same. That's the point. So why pay more? So why not deal with a company that's a small company, that has great customer service, that offers free shipping on all orders, and has better pricing when you're buying the same thing. Now, why silver and gold? I'm not an all-in guy. I'm not the guy that, like, you need to get out of the dollar. They're going to burn it to the ground. It's going to be worthless tomorrow. By the way, give me your dollars and here's some silver. I'm not that guy. But I do know that the plan for our money is a continued devaluation through the process of inflation, which is a hidden tax on the wealth of the American people. And I know that's the case because the former chairman of the Federal Reserve said so on the floor, uh, of the, the United States House of Representatives while being questioned by Ron Paul. He admitted that and said, it's okay. That's the way the system works. It's supposed to work that way. Well, if that's the plan, then my plan is to make sure I have a wealth assurance policy. We talk about insurance a lot, but assurance is, is equally important. And the way I personally do that is I have 10% of my net wealth, roughly, in silver and gold. I recommend that you do something similar. My personal recommendations are that you consider uh, a wealth assurance program of 5 to 10% of your net wealth in hard commodities like silver and gold. And if you need silver and gold, I can't give you a better recommendation than JM Bullion. Check them out today. And remember, members of our support brigade, you do get a discount on larger orders from JM Bullion. Check the benefits section of your MSB account to learn more about that. Next up today, sponsor of the day number two, westernbotanicals.com. Um, I am a big believer in going to herbs before going to conventional medicines, be they prescription drugs, over-the-counter, I don't care. Um, I have personally found that herbs are a more gentle way to treat 
the acute symptoms and chronic symptoms that we all deal with on a daily basis. Now, I'm not a doctor, and I don't prescribe treatments, and I never claim to. And the people at Western Botanicals, while they are a chiropractic facility, also don't make medical recommendations. They simply provide the highest quality herbs, raw herbs, and herbal supplements, and other things like essential oils for your own use. And they're real people that really care about you, and if you pick up the phone and call them, someone in Utah, not New Delhi, will answer the phone and help you make the right decisions for yourself. That's what Western Botanicals is all about. They are a great sponsor. They have been with us a very long time, six-plus years. That is that is forever in the world of podcasting. They also have a program called their Premium Membership Program where they give a 25% discount on everything they sell. They sell that membership for $50 a year every day. If you are a member of our support brigade, you get that membership absolutely free. All you have to do is call them up, give them the code word in your MSB account, and they will set up your account for you so you can get 25% off on everything they sell. Some of the favorite things that I use by them are the turmeric formula. Uh, that is one of the best anti-inflammatory things that I've ever used personally for myself. Again, I can't make individual personal recommendations on it, but I can tell you that I use it and it works for me. If my back is sore and achy, if my shoulder's acting up from an old injury from the military uh, after a hard day working, I go to that. Their deep heat ointment is another great thing for that. They have a pain relief formula that uses valerian. Those are things I personally use on a regular basis. There's a lot of other really great things there. Basically, guys, if it's herbal and it's legal, you can find it at Western Botanicals, where their goal is to create an herbalist in every home, to empower you not only to use their formulas, but to give you the raw herbs and the ingredients you need to make your own herbal formulations, including how to use the herbs from your own backyard and then get the parts for the formulation you need from them and the extra materials and the knowledge from them. You can get everything at westernbotanicals.com. Check them out today. Again, westernbotanicals.com. And if you're an MSB member, do not forget to get your premium membership 25% off everything they sell every day of the year. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode, the year 1665, because the episode is 1665. What I have for you today is the Great Plague of London, and I also have the government control of capitalism. Both of these entered into the wiki by Alex Shrugged number one contributor to tspwiki.com. And on that note, why don't you get over to tspwiki.com and contribute to the largest self-sufficiency, self-reliance, and modern survival wiki on the planet with a great deal of history thrown in so that we have all of this in context, thanks to Alex Shrugged. I'm going to read The Great Plague of London today. It is a sad commentary that the Black Death is such a normal part of life that it hardly rates a mention when thousands of people die. But this is a large outbreak, so let's review London has never been rid of the plague, but the number of deaths per year has varied wildly from a handful to tens of thousands. Over 100 deaths a week is considered epidemic, but in April it reaches almost 400. By May, it is really serious outbreak in progress. The population of London scatter. All stray dogs and cats are killed on site. Rubbish and dung are cleaned off the streets. Bonfires are set to circulate the air. It does no good. By February of the next year, 90 or 70 to 100,000 will be dead. The images of horse-drawn wagons and following a crier shouting, bring out your dead, come from these times. It is believed that the plague was brought to London along with Dutch prisoners who were captured during the recent English-Dutch war. But really, the Black Death never left. My take by Alex Shrugged, it is difficult to get exact numbers of the dead since there was no formal reporting system. Generally, the system was a local affair and it worked like this. Hey, who's going to go out and count the dead people? Uh, how about Bob? He's homeless and he needs work. Okay, Bob. 
We'll pay you $5 a report. Go out there and find some dead people and tell us how they died. Bob hasn't a clue. He's not trained to identify diseases. The family of the dead are charged a fee when Bob comes around to count, so they have no incentive to tell Bob anything. And even though this outbreak is called the Great Plague of London, this is nothing compared to other outbreaks. In 1656, 150,000 people die in Naples. In Seville, from 1647 to 1652, a half a million were killed. One million died in France, and it goes on and on throughout the 17th century. Yet in the modern day, we worry about a Dallas nurse exposed to Ebola traveling to Akron to buy a wedding dress. That's a reasonable worry, but if we lived in the 17th century, we would all be crying like little babies. Um, you know, what it makes me think of is the hysteria over Ebola. Absolute hysteria. Now, it, just a little over a year ago, there was a lot of hysteria. Every time you turn the TV on, Ebola nurse, Ebola, Ebola, uh, Ebola. Just it was it was constant. And what I said was, this is nothing for the United States of America. Africa's got a problem. This is nothing. And I was, you know, attacked viciously. You don't know, man. It could go airborne and all this other nonsense. Um, My actual fear, oh, by the way, Gizmodo has an article out today titled something to the effect of uh, how Africa has dropped Ebola deaths to near zero. Just saying. So there is that. But anyway, my concern with overhyping things like Ebola is, one, it misdirects people from stuff that's actually important. But two, boy that cried, the boy that cried wolf. I, I think that it's only a matter of time before a serious epidemic does hit this country. And the world, so uh, overall, a serious pandemic. And that when it does, we're going to have two things that are going to kind of happen simultaneously that will feed off each other. One, people will be so sick of, of, of hearing this nonsense. You know, the swine flu is going to kill us all. Ebola is going to kill us all. Blah, 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 blah. That by the time it does come to a head, a lot of people won't believe it and take any precautions whatsoever. Um, and... The additional thing is no one will actually be prepared. The, the medical industry will not be prepared. The government will not be prepared. And the people damn sure won't be prepared. And they'll be looking for the medical industry and the government to fix the problems. So once the boy that cries wolf uh, disease wears off, right, there'll be the two diseases, the actual pandemic and this disease of nobody believing it, then panic will, will, will come forward and, and, and absolutely make things worse. And the... The disbelief that there's anything to worry about by a public that's been jaded by so many false alarms will probably contribute to the spread of the disease with people being unwilling to take reasonable precautions early on. Um, in other words, the more things change, the more they stay the same. The people in charge are Bob, and Bob is you know homeless and needs work, and he's being paid to go out and find out information, and he doesn't have a clue. He's not trained to identify diseases Now, I'm not saying medical doctors aren't trained to identify diseases, but the people that are running the show, especially in the media, they have no clue. They're not trained to identify diseases, and they're being paid by report. Yeah, the more they stay, they're just not homeless. I guess that's the only only difference there is there. My take by Jack Spierko. Okay, uh, next up, let me remind you about the Member Support Brigade. If you love this show, you want to support the work we do, uh, you can join the MSB and get more than what you contribute back in discounts to over 65 vendors. I have a new one coming for you today where you're going to expand uh, your options with discounts into the precious metals industry, and I will be announcing that new discounter tomorrow, but I've got that deal worked out for you. I told you they'll keep coming. There'll be quite a few as we wind down 2015 and headed to 2016 while I continue to expand the value of the MSB. 
Uh, if you're new to the show, the MSB or Member Support Brigade is how you support our show if you want to be a voluntary supporter of the show. In return, you get a lot of really great stuff, and you get discounts on a lot of really great stuff you're probably already buying. You can learn more by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on Members. And uh, military law enforcement uh, and Peace Corps, along with first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters, all of you do qualify for a discount. Uh, if you email me before, not after you join with TSPC service discount in the subject line and tell me about your service in one or two sentences. With that, let's get into uh, your questions and comments and, and concerns and ideas and stories and, and all that stuff for me today. Let's start out with a gun question. It says, hey, Jack, I have a question about air rifles as hunting tools. Uh, I've been looking for at the new air rifles and I've that have come out on the market the last couple of years. They boast uh, 1,000 to 1,400 feet per second velocities such as the Gamma Whisper, to me, these seem like a quiet alternative to 22 long rifle. There are also companies offering calibers such as 25, 357, and even 50. I like the idea of 22 caliber over 177. I want the extra mass of the 22 offers, but it loses vol in velocity over the 177. I also know there are more pellet choices than 177. I would like to know your thoughts on air rifles. What would be your choice for small game and pest control when the noise from my 1022 is not wanted? Thank you, Jeremy. Let me start off with something that a lot of people will get really angry and upset with me about if they're air rifle fans. Um, a 22 short or even a 22 CB cap is superior in every way, shape, and form to a 22 pellet gun or a 177 pellet gun. And it's just as quiet. So you might consider that. But Jack, 22 shorts won't cycle in a Ruger. Yeah, well, they don't cycle in an air rifle either, right? Pellets don't cycle in an air rifle. Break bar these these, these uh, guns that are being asked by Jeremy here are single-shot break barrel guns. So we break the barrel, we put in a pellet, we close it, and bang. You can easily shoot that 1022 with 22 shorts and manually cycle and eject the rounds, and it's still got a faster rate of fire than a pellet gun. Then for shooting squirrels out of trees, you're not really worried about rate of fire anyway. So if it's just noise, okay, if there's, if there's no reason other than noise that you can't discharge a firearm, I would actually recommend something like CB caps, which are uh, 22 shells that have just a primer and a, and a round, or a maybe a 22 short as a quieter alternative before I would recommend a pellet rifle, okay? From a standpoint of being effective in getting the job done. And I'll get into why as we go through air rifles. There is no doubt that a high-velocity uh, pellet rifle, or even the stuff, I mean, squirrels have not become bionic overnight. I grew up uh, shooting an old Benjamin Sheridan 22 pellet uh, rifle. It was actually a... Uh, Sears and Roebuck, I think, was actually on it, but it was made by Benjamin Sheridan uh, that shot 22s, uh, 22 pellets. And I shot an awful lot of squirrels and rabbits and other things with it. And with that, I speak from experience when I say the pellet guns of the world are not equivalent to and do not perform as well as a 22 long rifle. If they did, no one would buy a 22 long rifle. Okay, so I have nothing against them, but they're not a replacement. Okay, it's 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 it, because we can't use that, or because we want additional challenge in our life, we're going to go to this. The downside of most of these these uh, pellet rifles, they are again an air piston uh, designed uh, single brake barrel uh, designed gun for the most part, and to get 
the velocity that manufacturers are shooting for today uh, out of both 177 and 22. It's a fairly heavy gun and a fairly large gun. And they weigh quite a bit more than a you know a 1022 or a Marlin Model 25 or what have you, or an old school Crossman or Benjamin you know pellet gun that will get up within a few hundred feet and still knock the snot out of a squirrel. Okay, um, most of them, and this is something to look at to go you know to actually go to a place where they sell them, so just order online and look at the the sites on them. They have gone to not a not a good reinforced nylon, but cheap plastic for their sights. And the front sight on most of these ends up broken if you if you're using iron sights. This really matters, right? From simple things like leaning it against the wall. That is not what we're looking for in a in a in a gun of any kind, including an air rifle. I don't know why they've gone to this, but I've seen this happen to Gamos, and I've seen it happen to to Beemans, which are two of the you know the, the most high selling and, and and most sought uh, air rifles out there today. I have a double two different barrels uh, for a Beeman that converts from one seven seven to twenty two. So if you're really up in the air and you still want one of these things, that's something to consider. Gamo makes some that do that well as well. You you remove uh, you, you loosen up an Allen screw and just pull one barrel out and pop the other. Then you got both of them. But both barrels, both barrels, have this. The front sight has a little uh, fiber optic sight, and it's into a plastic housing. Are broken, both of them. Uh, I've never really hunted hard with with that gun. I've just bought it for shooting stuff in the backyard in Arlington, where we couldn't use a twenty-two. Now, because of sound, because it was prohibited by the law, and I didn't want you know the police to come and take my gun away and write a citation for me, and maybe even take me to jail. So it was an alternative. So the, the sum total of the abuse this thing's had, again, is being set up against a wall. I, I don't know why these manufacturers have gotten that cheap, but I've talked to other people who've had the similar uh, scenarios with front sights breaking. So that kind of turns me off right there. Uh, my old Benjamin Sheridan, the old Crossmans, the old Sears and Roebuck knockoffs of them all had metal sights. What, what's so hard about putting a metal sight on a gun? Now, I want to be clear. I don't have a problem with proper materials or things like reinforced nylons and things like that. Ruger went to a nylon trigger guard on the 1022. A lot of people got really upset about it because, you know, what's wrong with steel? And so Ruger did a, a, a scenario where they dropped a 20-pound weight uh, down a, a rod so that it would make sure it hit where they wanted to onto the trigger guard, the old metal trigger guard, and it smashed it flat into the trigger and rendered the gun inoperable. They dropped the same weight on their nylon tr nylon trigger guard, and um, it, it bounced off of it and did no damage whatsoever. So I'm not saying all of these break-action uh, pellet guns have this problem. I'm saying if you're going to buy one, go check them out and, 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 and take a look at that front sight specifically, because even if you plan on using a scope, there's no point in having a gun not have iron sights on it. There's no value to it. Scopes go wonky. Okay, they do. The next thing is scopes. You're going to spend more money than you'd think to buy a good scope for a piston-driven air gun. They have a reverse recoil. They play hell on scopes that are commonly made for things like the 22 long rifle. And they often kill scopes. So you're going to need to buy, if you want a scope, a scope made for these rifles if you hope for it to do well for you. The next thing is most of them have grooved receivers. Instead of uh, a receiver that is designed to be drilled and tapped, you know, drilled and tapped for scope bases. 
So you're using a grooved receiver where you tighten up the sides. They are just well-known for causing that scope to move. Now, the uh, beam end that I have, they put a bushing on the, on, the, on the groove that you can set, and it's a double-set screw on there, and that worked. Okay, To be fair to that gun, that worked, and I didn't have scope problems with it. Uh, using the right type of scope, that is. Okay, So these are all things to consider. Now, on effectiveness on game, a .22 pellet out of a high-velocity uh, pellet gun, or even something like the old Benjamin I had, if you hit a squirrel in the head with it, it will knock the snot out of them. It will. It'll, it'll, it'll pinwheel them right out of the tree, and it'll kill them as dead as anything else. In some ways, it can at times be more effective uh, than, than a, let's say, a 22 long rifle because you generally get this kind of ripping total energy dump into the head of a squirrel where sometimes if you don't quite get the brain, you might kind of knock the front nose off a squirrel and need a follow-up shot with a 22. Um, and if you hit them in the rib cage area, in the lungs or heart area with a 22 pellet, it will also be highly effective as it kind of rips and tears through and delivers a lot of energy. Where sometimes your little round-nosed, uh, you know, 40 grain, 22 long rifle may not be as effective as you would think. So if you hit in the vitals or the head, they work really, really well, and you don't tend to ever get like a pass-through shot. And it, when you do hit a squirrel like that with a 22, they're dead too. But I've seen squirrels hit like through the lungs with a 22, hit the ground and run 10, 15 feet, and usually if they're hit through the lungs with a pellet, they're dead. 22 pellet, that is. 177, especially the higher velocity, I have seen squirrels hit in ways that they should have been dead, and they end up getting away. So I definitely err toward the side of caution and go with the 22. Now, those of you who want to tell me you watch some guy with PBA ammo shoot a wild boar in the head and kill it, yes, I saw those videos too. Just because you can do something doesn't mean that you should. Those are, that's a very important thing that we all should always remember. Just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. There's a story in one of Peter Capstick's book about a man who killed two elephants with a twenty-two long rifle. Just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. So, um, these higher caliber... Um, Air rifles, 357, 50 calibers, and some 40 stuff. Uh, these things are lethal weapons. There is no doubt about that. And that's a totally different discussion for a totally different day in what some of those weapons are capable of doing. It's pretty impressive. If you put a 50 caliber hole through anything's lungs, especially through both of them, it's going to run about as far as it can hold its breath. So those do work. And when we scale down to like a 22 and put that through the, the, the heart-lung region of a squirrel, if we can't get a headshot, the same holds true. I don't have anything really negative to say about these. I'm just saying they're not an equivalent. They're not an equivalent. And they do have some drawbacks. Personally, to me, I would rather go out and get something like, let's say, the uh, say Crossman uh, 392, which is a variable pump. Very, very similar to the old gun that I had when I was a kid. It's iron sights only. It is variable pump. You do have to pump it up ten times to get full velocity out of it. Uh, the velocity that you get out of it is uh, about, uh, let me see, six, 700 feet per, 685 feet per second. That's more than sufficient for small game hunting uh, within the limited distance and range. 
an effective range of a 22 pellet. It's built kind of old school. It, it's it's you know a metal and wood affair, and uh, I personally just think it's a better gun for what pellet guns are capable of doing in the first place. If we compare that to something like the Gamma Whisper, um, you're looking at a gun that weighs 7.4 pounds in the Gamma versus a gun that weighs 5 pounds uh, roughly in the the Crossman. It's also quite a bit shorter. So it is, you know, it's just, I don't know, to me, if I'm going to be using a pellet gun, I don't want to be dragging something around that weighs more than my deer rifle, that's longer than my deer rifle, with some big old honking thing that looks like a big old like James Bond silencer on the end of it. Uh, you're looking at a length on the Gamma Whisper. I'm looking at some specs right now, installing to do that. Um of 45.7 inches, 45.7 inches. It's almost almost four feet long. The length of the uh, the Crossman 392 is 36 inches. So three feet versus four feet of gun. Um, it's a pellet gun. You know, I and, and those of you that like are really into uh, pellet guns and air rifles and you like to break action guns and stuff. I don't have anything, again, I don't have anything against them. I'm just saying, if what we're, do we're looking to do is protect our fruit trees and nut trees in our backyard with a pellet gun that's going to do the job and, and, and not be some type of cumbersome thing and have less prone to failure, okay, uh, situation, I think we're better off. Now, I want to put a scope on it. It's a pellet gun. It's a pellet gun. Okay, it's not something you're going to shoot a squirrel at 100 yards with. It's a pellet gun. If you can't hit a squirrel in the head with iron sights with a pellet gun, you're probably not going to do it with a scope either, with the one exception. Squirrels climb up at trees. They kind of hide. They get into positions where that scope allows you to spot them and shoot them. Okay, I get it. But all things being equal, I'd go with something like a variable pump crossman. Uh, it's going to cost about $160. Bucks. And you'll probably give it to your kids. And they may very well give it to their grandkids. The old one I used to shoot was a gun that my grandfather owned uh, and ended up giving to my father, who when he left was handed down to his younger brother. And then I used it. And as far as I know, my uncle still has it. Uh, I don't know that the new ones are as well built as that, but they're pretty darn good. And I remember at times that gun failing to compress air because the piston had dried out on it, and all you did is add a little bit of, uh, of oil to it, and it would start shooting just fine all over again. And uh, I don't know, maybe it's just that I have an affinity for that style of gun, but I think if you shoot both of them and actually use both of them, you'll, you'll come away with an appreciation for the light uh, and quick handling nature of the, the smaller gun. Just my opinion. Here's a complex question. First day back after a workshop, and I, I picked the complex ones. Short, I don't, this is from Justin, I don't want to go to college. I'd rather just work and start building my own farm and homestead. My parents are pushing me to go to college. How do I talk or can talk to or convince them to support what I want to do? More info, both my parents and all their siblings and practically everyone they know went to college. The irony is my dad used his degree for about five years before switching fields. My mom used her master's for about eight years. I'm 18 and taking my first semester at community college for computer science. I'm filling out school applications and writing essays, but eventually I'll have to draw the line. 
I don't want to be at odds with my parents when I move out, but I don't want to go into college in debt. Worst case scenario, I pay for four years through ROTC, then serve four years of active duty. Well, by the time I've got out, I've wasted five, eight years, and I'm going to be 26. How do I go about this from your point of view? Thanks, Mr. Spierko. I love the work you do. You, are, you and the expert council members are such an inspiration. Well, Justin, the first thing you should not do is tell your parents you don't want to go to college because some guy with a survival podcast said so. Uh, I would not invoke my name or anything that I do in any discussion whatsoever with your parents. Uh, and I would give you that advice if I thought I was even someone they might sort of kind of listen to. Because this needs to come from you because this is about you. Well, the first thing I think that you need to do is understand something. You cannot control how your parents feel about your decisions. All you can control is your decisions and your willingness to be open-minded and listen to them and tell them, thank you for your opinion, but I'm going to go forward. One of the most encouraging things that I read in your email to me was when I move out. There are a lot of children that or young adults that are at odds with their future with their parents. They don't want to go to college, but they want their parents to continue to support them. Uh, and, and I don't mean mo emotionally and, and morally and what have you, but financially. They want dad and mom to keep a roof over their head. They want dad and mom to provide all for all their needs. But then they want to tell mom and dad, I don't want to go to college. Okay, now that doesn't work. That doesn't work. If you want to be treated like an adult, you have to act like an adult. That means for providing at least for your basic needs. Because until you do, what they're going to say is, see? See how hard it is? So you have to do that. There's a couple things to look at here. Okay, so not going to college is something that I'm all for if it's the right decision for the person making it. I'm going to tell you right now, do not go into ROTC. Do not plan on going into the military. Because you don't want to. And you can't do that if you don't want to do it. You can't do that to yourself and going through ROTC, coming in as a commissioned officer and having men serve under you. It is irresponsible for someone to go into military service who doesn't really believe in what they're doing, period. It is far more irresponsible for that person to take on a position of leadership as a commissioned officer due to a degree uh, and have men depending on you and women depending on you in that position of leadership when you don't really want to be there. Uh, I, I knew a couple officers like that, that that had used the military to pay for their education. They were fulfilling their obligations. They were good people, but they did not want the job, and they had no respect whatsoever, and they didn't deserve it. They had respect as people. They had no respect as officers, and they didn't deserve it, and they were miserable. And if you do this, you will be miserable. Now, if you said, I'm, I, I think this is a good idea, and it's a sacrifice, and I understand it's a sacrifice, but I want to serve, and it, that's a different discussion. But from the standpoint you're coming at me, absolutely not. Do not even consider this an option, because all you're saying is, I, I don't want the debt, so I'm going to trade four years of uh, giving up my freedom and liberty as a military officer uh, compared to having to pay back the debt. Okay? So... Right now, it sounds like you're kind of going along to get along. Community college, you take some courses and whatever. And you know what? There's nothing wrong with that. You might discover some stuff about yourself in doing that. As for how do you actually make the case to your parents that you want to start building your own farm and homestead is, well, how are you going to do that? See, you have work to do here. You have market research to do. You need to determine what your cost of startup is going to be. 
You need to figure out how you're going to get that money. You need to figure out what your entry into the market's going to be. If you're actually serious about farming as a profession, then you're probably not buying a property so that you can farm so that you think you can make money. You're probably going to have to start out with, with, you know, a lease land option and start developing your skill sets. Start filing a Schedule F in the agricultural world so that you qualify for things like loans and grants through agricultural extensions, NICS, etc. You need to learn about those things. You need to at least know how Excel works because that's a great way to make a case to mom and dad, so that you can put together a business plan, a marketing plan, a cost analysis, return of investment. Because I, I bet you, I just bet you, if you sit down with your parents and say, here's my four-year progression, here's my goals at the end of those four years, I'll have four years of a Schedule F filing, I'll qualify for the following grants, I intend to use that to expand my operation, okay, that even if they don't agree, they will view the situation completely differently than just having this kid that they've always believed in their head was going to go to college like mom and dad and, and grandma and grandpa and their brother and their sister and everybody they know saying, I don't want to go to college, I want to farm and homestead. Because what they're thinking is you don't, you're not qualified to make that decision for yourself right now. And on some levels, they may be correct. Are you qualified to make that decision? Is this just an idea that you're gravitating towards, or have you done the work? Have you done the hard numbers? Have you figured out, in my climate, what is the most profitable thing I can get started with? If you don't know the answer to that question, you're not ready to make this decision yet. right? And a couple of years of, or a couple of courses in computer programming will not hurt you. right? And the cost of community college is pretty low, etc. Okay? Um, but If you don't know that one thing, what are, what are the one or two things that I could start with that would be most profitable and fastest return of investment in my environment? Uh, you know, could you be right now setting up your first little operation, developing and selling microgreens, for instance, that you could have the equipment set up in your room? You know, nothing gets through to people like, here's the money I made this month. Here's the contracts that I, I acquired this month. Here's, here's, here's my plan for expansion with that. Here's, here's my accounting. And I'm taking this accounting seriously because this year when I file my taxes, I'm going to have a small amount of farm-based income. That's important because with three years of that, even if it's relatively small, here are the different programs, opportunities, and incentives that are available in agriculture that can have me being a property owner in my early 20s without student loan debt. Here's the progression. And you need to be honest with yourself as you develop that plan and, and be honest with yourself about the time that it's going to take and the sacrifice it's going to take and how much other work you're going to have to do because you're going to have to have an income. You're probably not going to be able to produce enough farm income for yourself, especially early on, especially if you're trying to save so that we can move from tenant to landowner. Okay? So... We have to make sure that if this is your career progression, there is a, a, a proper financial assessment of the situation, a, a proper risk assessment of the situation, and a proper pathway developed for you to go through that. Now, here's the interesting thing. If you show this to your parents, okay, and they, they, they still object, I would like you to ask them the following. Well... Have you ever seen anybody, including yourselves, take this dedicated of an approach to going to college? To actually work all these numbers out and 
Do you want to work out the numbers for a degree in something I don't really want to do? Do you want to sit down and run this same type of analysis for my degree with me? Do you want to figure out how much debt I'm going to be in and how long it's going to take to repay that compared to this plan that I've put together for myself? Because if I'm going to obligate myself to pay loans for conceivably the rest of my life or obligate myself to military service to uh, avoid those loans, I'd like to know what I can expect to receive as a return on my labor and effort. I mean... Because you should be looking at things like if you can acquire a property of X acres and do certain improvements to it over time, which has enough income to provide for those improvements and a living income, what's the underlying equity of that property based on current market projections in your area when you're 30 years old? So what's my net worth at 30 as a farmer, including the farm, even if it takes me to 25 to actually own a farm, compared to my net worth at 30 If I go this path, and what's my debt-to-income ratio in both of those scenarios? Trust me, your parents aren't prepared to answer that question. So you need to be. You need to be at least prepared to answer that question from, this is the answer to that question if I take this path. This is a best-case and worst-case scenario. And this is an average of the two. So in the worst-case scenario, assuming I survive this and don't fail at it, there's no guarantee I wouldn't fail at college or any other career, okay? But assuming I don't fail, and I, I do the, the basic minimums, this is, this is kind of, and assuming I blow it up, this is the, the maximum potential. And the, the number in the middle is probably what we should base our planning on then because that's what you do when you make good financial planning decisions. You base your numbers on averages. That's where you target all your decisions about at that average. That way, if you come short, it's easier to come down, and anything above that is a windfall. And if you can answer that question, if you can show that pathway, and then your parents say, I'm sorry, I still think you should go get a degree in bitterness studies or whatever, then you at some point have to be a freaking man, young man, and stand up and say, I've considered what you have to say. I've made my decisions because I believe this is the right path for me. I'm going to walk this path. I would appreciate your support in doing so, but if you don't want to give it to me, it will not prevent me from doing what I think is right in my life because you guys raised me in a way that makes me understand how important it is that I live my life based on my terms. I thank you for that. And I think you're pretty much done. I think you're pretty much done. I think if there's any resistance at that point, it's emotional, illogical resistance. And I would walk away, and I bet you, as soon as they have time to think about it. So, I would, so if you got to that point and there was still resistance, I would end the conversation and say we can talk about this later. And I would walk away like a man. Not I hate you, not you never believed in me, just I'm sorry that we don't agree at this point. I'd like you to think about what I've had to say. I'll be happy to listen to you later, but right now I've, I've told you why I'm doing this. And i got to go get to work and walk away like a man. It's, it's almost inconceivable to me that you would have to explain yourself ever again. And I bet you, I just bet you'd have their support. And their support's important because it's important to you. And remember that. Your support, their support is only important because it's important to you. Now, if you're asking them for money, then you have to take a, even a more diligent approach than what I've just laid out for you. And the reason I want you to take the approach I gave you is it will not only make a case to them, but it will help you make the proper decisions for yourself. That's the best I can do with you on that. And uh, sorry, my voice is a little stronger today.
Here's a great question. Uh, Stuart asks, is it possible to safely reduce the amount of salt in curing bacon at home? Background, my wife has high blood pressure, so we have basically cut added salt out of our diets, but we love bacon. We have been eating low-sodium bacon as an alternative. I have been wanting to cure my own bacon. I found a vacuum-packed pork belly at Costco, so I gave it a try. I used a recipe that called for a wet cure. I used one and a half cups of Morton Tender Quick, as well as brown sugar and, and maple syrup, cured for one week, smoked for six hours, and had good to go. Flavor is great, but it was very salty since we uh, used very little or no salt. It was certainly more salty than the store-bought stuff. Can I safely reduce the amount of Tender Quick to reduce the salt flavor without risking issues of ending up with ham, not bacon? Any suggestions or recipes would be great. Thanks to Eric and Keith, especially Jack. So this was actually for Eric, Keith, or me. I'm going to take this one rather than see it as an expert counsel question because I think that probably out of the three there, I probably have the most experience with how to answer this. Well, here's the thing. Let's start out with what is tender quick and why did it say so salty to you? Tender quick is salt, uh, sugar, sodium nitrate, and sodium nitrite. Um, it is mostly salt. It is more salt than anything else. It is a very small amount of the curing agents of sodium nitrite and nitrate, which are both sodium-based and kind of a type of salt. So there's really no good reason to be using tender quick to make bacon. You make bacon with salt. If you want to add sugar, you add some sugar. If you want to add anything else, you add whatever else you want. I'm thinking about making my next batch of bacon and mixing in with the salt, dehydrating to extremely crisp so it'll be nice and fluffy uh, jalapeno peppers and making a jalapeno salt and doing a cure of the bacon with jalapenos uh, infused into the salt and getting a jalapeno-flavored bacon. So how do we then make sure bacon gets cured if we don't use any of these special nitrites and nitrates and tender quicks? That's not how you make bacon. What those do is they do contribute somewhat to the color, though my bacon came out with a really great color, and uh, they are not necessary. And if you listen to my interview with the Farmstead Meatsmith, uh, who is one of probably the most switched on people in the world about how to take care of pork, and he says flat out, you put salt on pork belly, and you cure it, and you get bacon. So the issue then becomes how much salt do you need? And Brandon, the Farmstead Meatsmith, wasn't willing to even give us a number. My first batch came out too salty, flat out, because I didn't really you know, know what to do, so I just kind of kept doing it. But basically, I believe the easiest way to make bacon is a dry cure. You take you know, good quality salt, uh, like a kosher salt, and rub the pork with it and set it in the refrigerator and let it draw the moisture out. And when you get the bake, you get the pork belly to the point where it's no longer floppy and soft and all, and it has that nice feel of bacon, it's done. That's Brandon's entire instructions. And then you can smoke or do with it as you please. But if you make bacon that way, what Brandon says, and I have no reason to doubt him, is you could take that slab of bacon and hang it up in your kitchen from the roof, and it won't go bad. It's good to go. It's done. It's made bacon. Now, so what you can start to do now is start experimenting with how much salt you really need to get the job done. And you have to use enough to get the result that you're looking for. couple things to help from over-salting. 
give it time. It's not going to go bad in the refrigerator if you've salted it at all. Number two, what Brandon says is don't leave it lay in the bowl in the, the water content that comes out of the belly. So for me, the easiest thing that I figured out to do was to get a plastic bin to keep it in and get um, a like a cooking grate, like you you know you cook stuff on in the oven or in uh, on a grill uh, that's elevated a little bit and put it in the bottom and set the pork belly on top of that so that as the moisture pulled out the the pork belly is not sitting in the water so it's not pulling the salt back in that's come out with the water that that's draw, some's been drawn out so that works now you make your bacon you cut a piece of it you fry it up or whatever they say man that's still too salty Cut off a piece or your slices that you're going to be cooking. Fill up a pot of water or a, a, a bowl of water. Put your bacon that you're going to cook later into that water. Let it sit there for about 30 minutes. Set it on paper towel, pat it dry, and then cook it as normal. You will taste a dramatic decrease in the saltiness of the bacon because the water will draw the salt back out. Um, if you leave it there too long, you might actually find it being under-flavored. Now, might that also extract some of your brown sugar or maple flavors, whatever? Sure. Sure. But, again, you leave it as long as so you might experiment with that, too. But that's about it. So, when I had Brandon on, I had a big bag of Morton Tender Quick in my cabinet. And after Brandon was on the show, I went and threw it away. And decided I would never use that product ever again. There was no real need for it, no real call for it, and it wasn't necessary. That maybe some of the other uh, cured meats that I might make may be a little grayish and not quite that bright red color that you're looking for, but that there was no need for it. And what I would advise you to do now is listen to that interview with the Farmstead Meatsmith, so I'll make sure that I put a link in today's show notes for you. I guess I'm a glutton for punishment because I have another how do I convince my instead of parents uh, wife question I'm going to take today, and this isn't... An interesting one. This one comes from Andrew. My question in brief and then details below. How would you convince your wife to get on board with you quitting your job and going self-employed? I think her biggest holdup is a lack of savings. Details. Normally when I email you, I know you will read it, and I would get a thrill to be mentioned on the air. In this case, though, you are actually the only one I know of who could answer this question because you're the only one I know of who has a similar relationship with your wife as I have with mine. We are 50-50 business partners, and I respect my wife's mind as well as love the hell out of her. I want to quit and work full-time on our business. She wants to wait until we have more savings, but this job is literally killing me. I think the stress has given me an arrhythmia. Our deal, we started a business together about two years ago, and I've grown it slowly. Right now, my business is clearing about $5,000 a month with us working part-time on it, and my actual job is clearing $3,000 after benefits and taxes. So I actually make more on our business. Right now, we have five k in savings, another five coming in this month from the biz. I know we can grow this business further, plus I want to diversify income streams. So my remit right now is time. But I listen to every podcast you ever do on business over and over. I know I can push it further and succeed because I just went out and freaking did it. I know you don't give specific advice, and I understand why. I just put the numbers in so you would know I wasn't one of those people that just dreams and never does. I'm 31. I've worked for the man my whole life. Pretend I'm your son. What advice would you give me? towards taking my wife into being comfortable with this. I also want I want this so bad I can taste it. And my job is killing me, but my wife is scared. I want her to be okay with this because I respect her opinion. Any advice would be awesome because I need to do this. I love the show, man. Andy. Um, so it's complicated, all right? 
Because if you're going to tell me that with $8,000 in income, which is what you have right now, I, I don't know how long you've been doing this, but I, I would assume it's been a little while to get up to $5,000 in revenue or $60,000 a year in revenue in your business. And, and I'm assuming that's money that you actually make. That's, that's what you profit by. Okay, because if it's if it's just sales and your cost of doing business is like $4,500, you have a $500 a, a, a month income. You do not have a $5,000. I'm assuming your numbers mean what it sounds like they mean. But if you're telling me that, what that means to me is you have an $8,000 income stream and all you've been able to save at this point is $5,000. You have another $5,000 coming in from the business. Do you have to pay business expenses with that or is that free and clear? If you if if you at the end of this month are going to have 5k profit out of that business and you know your business is such that it's not a huge capital expenditure to run it and that $5,000 is actually income then you don't have $5,000 in savings you have $10,000 in savings I feel a bit better about that but here's here's the numbers right now your income from both sources if they're all income is $8,000 a month. Three times eight is $24,000. That's 90 days of income. That's kind of the buffer you might really want to be working with. Now, we can look at that a different way. Your income from your job is $3,000, and you could be looking at $9,000 if you had three months of income. But if that's the way we're going to look at it, I'm going to tell you you want six months of income in savings. Okay? So six times three is what? $18,000. We're, we're kind of back in that $20,000 range, right? So does that mean that you should just work until you have that much money saved up? Um, no, it doesn't necessarily mean that. But this is what I would tell you. This is what I would say to your wife. What about this? What if we can maintain the cash flow from the business for two more months? And we immediately decide that my $3,000 a month for my business is like we quit. And, and I, I, I quit, and for 60 days I'm not able to raise the revenue in the business at all. And that means that for the next two months, every paycheck I get goes in the savings account 100%. 100% of it goes away. It's not there. It's not there. We have to make do without it. This will do a couple things for us. One it will show us that the business is sustainable. That that income coming out of that business can be at least maintained. If we can maintain it on a part-time basis, we can grow it on a full-time basis. So it's not an aberration. Because maybe your wife's worried because your business didn't make a lot of money and then all of a sudden it's just taken off. Sometimes businesses that take off, they go through a peak, a plateau, and back down. So this is a legitimate concern that should be a concern for you And it also is a way to give her some more assurance. Number two, it lets you see what it's like to actually live on that income versus that income plus your job. Because that was exactly what I had to do when I walked away. My income from Survival Podcast was pretty damn good. But I walked away from a $100,000 plus a year income stream. Just walked away. $100,000 a year in income, gone. Now, I was able to do a lot more for the show after I walked away that I would have ever been able to do before I walked away. But that's that money's not there anymore. That money's not there anymore. Okay? So you actually have to like give yourself the test. What's it like without it? You might be surprised. 
And what you're going to say is, but if I was working full-time, I would make more. Not immediately. Not immediately. And your full-time effort in your business will probably result in some additional spend. You also mentioned benefits. What are you going to do about that? What are the, what's going to be the cost of health insurance? What's going to be the cost of health insurance? At this point, does it make sense? Two months, November, December, does it make sense to just work through the tax year and, and look at going full-time with this in the new tax year? Does that make a lot of sense for a lot of reasons? Such as your employer is covering match, matching SSI till the end of the year because, by the way, all this income you're getting, self-employment income, you have to match your own Social Security on it. So when I look at it that way, I think that my advice to you, if you were my son, maintain your employment through the end of the year. Live without your employment income through the end of the year. See that as your cost because that will put another six grand in your bank account. Assuming the business is making $5,000 in profit and that $5,000 that's coming in next can go in, that's eleven grand. Now you live off the business for the last two months of the year, assuming it produces five grand. And then you're sitting there with a realistic expectation because now what you can say is, okay, my base salary from the business is now estimated at $60,000 a year. Anything beyond that can go into savings or reinvestment to grow the business. And I have a better income than 80% of the freaking country right now. Let me let me tell you what it really is. I don't know if it's that much, but it's 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 something crazy like that. Here's a perfect example of when I say that just cuz I re- I don't read your email on the air that you know doesn't mean you're not influenced the show. Somebody sent me an email recently um, from uh, Zero Hedge and the title is Goodbye Middle Class. 51% of all American workers make less than $30,000 a year. Less than $30,000 a year. Um, 71% of American workers make less than $50,000 a year. So it's probably my number of 80% off the top of my head is probably not far off. I'll put a link to that article because it might help you and it might help some other people. I'm not going to go deep in that article. I'm sticking with you. So that's kind of what I'm saying here. That allying your wife's fears by putting up some more money before you walk away, but also having an agreement. Okay, this is what we're going to do for the next 60 days. If she says no, then I think my response would be, so what is enough? What is enough? When are you going to be willing to, what do I have to do to make you comfortable with this? You say we need more savings. How much more? You say we need to keep doing this for more time. How much longer? Because let me tell you what's going to happen if you guys agree to something. If she says four months and we have to have $20,000, in four months you will have $20,000. If you feel about this the way that you say you do, even if you have to work harder than you've ever worked in your life for the next four months, in both sides of your equation, you'll do it. And you'll get there. And now we agreed on this, and now we're going to take this step and do it. Because here's my true feeling about this. If your business actually has $5,000 a month in income, and you walked into it now and went full-time, and you made a commitment to yourself that that's just the way it is, and I'm not spending another day in that place, you'd make it work. You'd make it work. But your marriage is as important as your business, if not more so. Okay? So 
I think that, but okay, then the other side of that is, okay, if, if, if it's something like, well, five more years or something, or we need $100,000, honey, I'm sorry, I can't do it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Instead of the two months I wanted to do, I'll do four. Here's the numbers I'm going to have. I'm going to prove it to you, but I cannot continue to do this. I want to be your husband, not a slave to the system. I'm willing to say that. I don't know if you are. That's how I feel about it. I really do. That's what I would tell my son. That if you can build a 60 grand a year income stream working part-time, you can kill it. You can blow it up. But again, this is all predicated on two things. One, those numbers are income, not revenue. And number two, that income is not a spike. This is not a business you've been doing for two years and you had two really good months. And you have no projections that you're going to retain that. So you got some kind of big win. If that's what happened, then you really need to listen to the counsel of your wife. And if, if it's not what happened, if this is consistent income, okay, then I got to ask, where's the money going? Where's the money going? Because if that's the case, if you've been making five grand a month consistently for six, eight, ten months, and you can afford to let three thousand go, then there should be more than five k in the in the kitty. Or are you investing it? Not in the business, but like, ha have you been like laying down money into your four hundred one or IRA or whatever? You know, when you see a 5K in savings, does that mean in a in a bank savings account? But you're sitting on a you know a hundred grand, two hundred grand in retirement savings between the two of you. It's a little different. I I get it then. I get it then. What are your what's your debt? So this is the other side of this. What is your debts? Are you debt free, except for the house? I think you're in a great position. Do you owe 30 grand in credit card debt, buddy? You ain't ready to walk away from a job yet. Probably not anyway. I don't know. I still think you could kill it if if if, there's, if that number is solid. If you can honestly tell, if you were looking me in the eye right now and I said, "Hey, do you really think that if you keep doing things the way you're doing them right now, you're going to have a 5K November, not just a 5K October, and a 5K December?" Yeah. Okay. We're in we're in the ballpark. What was what was your you know what was your September? What was your August? What was your July? If, if me going backwards is starting to make you squirm, think. We all get fed up. We all have to do our time to get what we want. But in the end, somebody that really believes they can make something work and they've got that to build off of, you probably would survive. But you want your marriage to survive too. So that's the deal I'd make. Let's, I'll work through the end of the year or I'll, I'll throw two months on that. And this is what we're going to do with the money. This is how we're going to live. We're going to make a commitment right now that X percent of my income goes straight into savings. It's like it's not even there. And I'm going to tell you right now, you're not going to see me as much as you're used to because I'm going to work harder on this extra business during this four months than you've ever seen before in your life. I'll see you at Thanksgiving and Christmas. I'm making this happen because you're important enough to me that I believe that if I make this happen, we'll have a better life and I'll have control over my life so I can be the husband you wanted to marry. That's what I'd tell you if you were my son. And I wish my son was as motivated as you seem to be. Seriously. And who knows? Who knows? Maybe you get lucky. <laughs> Maybe you get lucky and they fire you <laughs> by the end of the year. You know, like you get a layoff or something 
And then you take all the business income over to your wife's uh, income category and work for free uh, for a while while you draw unemployment. I, I don't know. That's kind of dishonest, but just the afterthought there. And I, I do have to say one thing on behalf of my wonderful wife who supported me in everything that, that we've ever done, that it, my relationship is a little different because every time I've ever said this is what I want to do, even if she was apprehensive, the only thing that she ever said was do it. And uh, I'm very fortunate because of that. And I have a lot of what I have in my life because of that. So it's important that I say that on her behalf, I think. But I also want to give some encouragement to, to people like yourself and everybody else out there trying to make it happen uh, that you can make it work. Even sometimes if you just say, that's it, I can't take it anymore and walk away. This is an email from Josh, and just a real quick one here. Josh says, a year ago I went full-time on my own and walked away from a management job with a local mine. So far this year, I've brought in $95,000 and had a great time doing it. Thanks for the encouragement. I should have made the move sooner. If you ever find yourself in southeast Alaska, I'll be happy to take you fishing. Kind regards, Josh. See, sometimes you just got to go crush it, man. So, so all of you out there, there's a time for caution. There's a time to plan. There's a time to save and get ready. And then there's the time to say, screw it, I'm done. I'm done, and I'm going to go make this work. And every time you get to that point where you think you're ready to do it, it's scary as shit. It's scary as shit to walk away from what you think of in your head as a guaranteed job. And that's kind of why I put that in there. You know, Maybe you'll get lucky and they'll lay you off. Maybe you'll get unlucky, you won't take the opportunity The business will dwindle, and then they lay you off or fire you or the company goes bankrupt or whatever. The one thing you know about working for yourself, and I'm sure Josh will tell you, you'll never fire yourself. You'll never fire yourself. Let's kind of stick with this theme a little bit about what people think of as being guaranteed uh, in, in this day and age. You know the job. At least you know you're going to get 40 hours a week and your benefits and, and, and employment. Really? Really? You, you, you think a job works that way? Because what would be better as a guarantee than a job with an employer? How about payments from a government? Right? You know, let's say you're done. You worked your 20 or 30 years or whatever it is, and you're, you, now you have your pension from, from, the, from a state like Illinois. I mean, nothing could go wrong with that, right? Well, um, yeah, about that. Also from Zero Hedge. Illinois, to delay pension payments amid budget woes. For all intents and purposes, we're out of money now. By now, Illinois' budget problems are no secret. Back in May, after the state Supreme Court struck down a pension reform bill, Moody's move to downgrade the city of Chicago thrust the state's financial woes into a national spotlight. Since then, the situation hasn't gotten any better, despite hiring an all-star budget guru for $30,000 a month, no less, Bruce Brunner was unable to pass a budget in a timely fashion, leading directly to all types of absurdities, including everything from the possibility of shortened school years to lottery winners being paid in IOUs. Now, as Bloomberg reports, pension payments are set to be delayed. Bond payments apparently will still be made. Illinois will delay pension payments as prolonged budget impasse causes a cash shortage, Comptroller Leslie Gressler Munger said. The spending standoff between Republican Governor Bruce Renner and Democratic legislative leaders has extended to its fourth month with no signs of ending. 
Munger said her office will postpone a $560 million retirement fund payment next month and may make the December contribution late. Decision is now choosing the least of a number of bad options, Munger told reporters in Chicago on Wednesday. For all intents and purposes, we are out of money now. Munger said the pension systems will be paid in full by the end of the fiscal year in June. The state is still making bond payments, she said. We prioritize the bond payments above everything else, Munger told reporters. So yeah, the people that loan you money, they get their money back before the people that you owe money to for 30 years of service. Why would you do that? If you know anything about money and finance, you know why you would do that. Because the only way you're going to get more money when you're already in debt is for somebody else to be dumb enough to lend you money. So this is like, you pay the MasterCard bill this month one more time, and you cut off everything else so you can convince the Visa people to be dumb enough to raise your credit limit. And then you make sure you make that payment next month and show that to the MasterCard people and ask them to do it again. That's the game that Illinois is in right now. And this is a problem, and this is one I got from a lot of you, and this is another one of those emails that has the subject line that I always put my head down. I put my, my face in my hands, and I rub my face, and I go, do I really want to open this? You know what it says? You were right again, Jack. Um, it's a depressing email. I... I, I There's seldom that I get an email telling me I was right about something, and when I open it up, I'm like, woohoo! And what people that are looking at this are trying to say is, this is really not as big a problem as it seems like. Well, wait a minute, they can't they can't pay their their pension funds. That's that's about as bad as it gets. I see. No, no, no. This is a discrepancy between the governor and the legislature. This is a budget showdown, like you know, shutting the government down type of thing, like we've seen out of Washington. If If they just would agree to borrow more money and spend money they don't have, they could pay this bill. Uh, that's somewhat true, but it's what got them into this problem in the first place. This is a governor basically saying, hey, look, we, we, we are in so much trouble. We have got to figure this out. And Illinois has tried to make adjustments to its uh, pensions and say, look, we're going to have to cut certain things. And the Illinois state court said, you can't do that. You're breaking your word. This is exactly what I said would happen. All the way back in 2008, 2009, I was talking about this crisis looming. That sooner or later, all of these, these, these government pensions that cannot be possibly serviced would get to a point where they become, uh, they, they begin to realize that, that, that we can't do this. And that as it became more and more apparent, that states, that counties, that cities, the municipalities, would start saying to their pensioners, look, we're sorry, there's not enough money here. And that what would happen is that the pensioners and the unions would hold their breath and say, uh-uh, bullshit. And the, 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 the sooner or later they'd say, look, um, we can meet most of these obligations. We, we are going to have to cut some things. There's just not enough. And they'd say, hold their breath and say, oh, hell no. And it sooner or later it would lead to catastrophic failures. I think what you're seeing in Illinois right now It's a systemic problem that's, that that's affects a great deal of the country. Uh, with municipalities from small towns and, and, and cities and, and what have you to, to counties to large cities like Chicago to entire states like Illinois. And that basically right now we're, we're picking a scab off a wound that everybody kind of knew about but didn't think was really that bad. And underneath there is like a gangrenous, green, nasty, stinking pus. And then the question is, Is it just in the arm that's Illinois, the, for, the left forearm, you know, that's Illinois, 
or is it also in the, the, the hand that is New York State and, and, and the shoulder that is California and, and the torso, you know, the upper right torso that's Nevada? How, how many places is this disease prevalent in, in society today? And my answer is, I think, in most places. I think even in many states like Texas uh, that seem to be doing very well financially, that this underlying problem is there, but their current good times kick the can further down the road. The, 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 the danger here is having a huge segment of society that banked on an income not have it, or not have most of it, or not have all of it, or even only have half of it. Um, this country between automation replacing jobs government bullshit Ponzi schemes uh, uh, that are in the form of retirement accounts and, and lending and bond stacking uh, coming to a head all at the same time is in danger of probably the worst recession, if not depression, that it's ever, ever conceived of in its life, its existence. And how exactly that plays out, how long it takes to happen, I don't know, but this is... This is why you're better off building your own business. And what people say, well, if the whole country goes into recession, then my business will be hurt too. Yes, but at least you control your business. At least you can adapt your business to the market. At least you can innovate in your business. Because if this type of thing starts to happen, your, your security in your job is not quite what you thought it was. It really isn't. Now, is this... The end of the world as we know it, maybe as we know it, but it's not what people tend to try to say that it is. There will be some adaptation by the financial system to this. Don't believe that the, the you're going to see patriots the coming collapse from this. This is just it's just not realistic. What you're going to see is this kind of bleeding all over the place in an attempt to close off and clot the bleeding and some parts of the body needing to be cut off, so to speak, to, to save the whole. But the whole will be saved. It, it really will. Because what will happen is eventually everybody will come to terms with it. And since the whole financial system is fake anyway, they'll hit a reset button and they'll re-monetize the economy by revaluing the currency. That's something I've also been saying since 2008, 2009. And this is where it gets all you know confusing for people. Well, he says everything's going to be okay. No, no, it's going to suck. And it's only going to be the smart, the hardworking, and the adaptive to get through it. It really is. And still have the shirt on their back. This is going to be the greatest fleecing of wealth you've ever seen, ever, in the history of mankind. I don't know exactly how it's going to work out, but I can tell you right now, this is exactly what I've been saying now for eight years would eventually become a problem. These municipalities, these state-level institutions finally having the reckoning, the reckoning with reality. And that, that's what Illinois is going through right now. Now, does this mean that the Illinois uh, state government will be in bankruptcy by this time next year? No, this will be... This will be, let's call it, um, not fixed, but corrected for a time. Sooner or later, someone will give. Something will give. It has to. Because the alternative is, Illinois goes bankrupt. And um, it's one thing for a city to go bankrupt. State? Um, talk about interesting times to be living in. 
All right, and with that, guys, I am going to wrap up for the day. As you can hear, my voice is strained whenever I am involved with teaching a class uh, for four days in a row, like I just did with Nick Ferguson at Permaculture Classroom. Uh, it, it always is tough on the voice because I do try to spend as much time as I can talking to people and answering questions, and it it just has a, a toll that it takes on you eventually. So I do apologize for the weakness in my voice. I hope that uh, I've been uh, able, though, to uh, to convey a great show for you guys today, and I want all of you to keep working for something more. We're kind of ending on a down note there, you know, talking about things like basically the entire economy imploding upon itself is more and more of these things like Illinois uh, and their inability to actually manage a checkbook uh, comes to uh, fruition. And the truth is none of these states are capable of managing a checkbook because nobody's ever really made them. They've been able to get away with this for a long time. And there's a, a point at which this all has to be reckoned out. But I guess the upside is we will get through it. We will get through it. Again, never let that make you let your guard down. Or make you think everything is going to be super and make stupid decisions and not really think about what you're doing. But do let it give you an impetus to build something. Because we have way too many people not building something because, well, I might lose it. Well, it is better to build something and lose it and learn the lessons in doing so than to die old, penniless, and broke. Having never lost anything, but having never built anything. That's a sad way to live. It's a sad legacy to leave behind. This country, as I said last week, despite all its problems, if you live in the United States of America, you have more opportunity than anybody else in the world to build something for yourself. To not take advantage of it is to squander an opportunity. That's no way to live. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.